All right. We are uh, in the third installment of our series called House in Order, where we're talking about time, money, relationships. How do we prioritize our time, money, and relationships? Uh, and today, I don't know if you noticed, it's Valentine's Day. Anybody notice that? Some people are like grown. Some people are like, yeah, I know. Don't even mention it, man. Some people are happy. Sister Cosby's happy about it. I love that. Um, so I thought, well, why don't we just do our relationships uh, series uh, sermon today on Valentine's Day? Um, and uh, because there's just like nothing in the world that impacts our life like the quality of our relationships. Uh, our relationships with our friends, our colleagues, our spouse, our, our friends at work, these things impact the quality of our life more than anything else. So I thought, let's just, let's just dive right in to see what the Bible says about relationships. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm putting my boys to bed at night, they always want a story. Every, every night, they want me to tell them a story before they go to bed. And the thing is about their stories, they, they're very particular. There are certain elements that have to be in each story. And if the, that element is not in the story, it is not a satisfying experience. And they will tell me that I need to retell the story and fix the thing. Or they'll interject right in the middle uh, and say, you need, to, you, know, you need to have this element in the story. One element is you've always got to have a hero. There's got to be a protagonist. There's got to be a, a somebody that you know, this is who we're rooting for. This is the lead character. We're going to follow this character. So you've got, you got to have, and that's got to be clear. It's got to be clear. This, this is a protagonist. This is the hero. The second component is that hero has to go on a quest. That, that hero has to either go on an adventure, some kind of a quest, and it should usually be dangerous, right? It should usually be so dangerous that you don't even know if your hero is going to make it out. Uh, and, and so you've got to introduce a quest or an adventure or something where your hero is going to go. The third component is very important also. Your hero has to win. Okay, they've got to successfully conclude the quest. Because if they don't, man, you will hear about it from my kids. They will not, they will not go to bed unless the hero has prevailed, has wrapped up the entire quest, has, has mastered the adventure, has slain the dragon, or whatever it is. They've got to conclude that quest. Now, those are the three main elements. But there's always a fourth element that with, if you don't introduce the fourth element, it's not quite as satisfying, right? The fourth element is what I call the relational component. There's got to be someone for whom the hero is fighting. Okay, you can't have a story where there's a, a, a knight on a desert island who lives by himself a terrible dragon comes along, he slays the dragon, and then he continues to live on the desert island by himself, right? That, that's not a satisfying story. There's got to be somebody, it could be a village, it could be a pet, it could be a friend, it could be a love interest, but there's got to be somebody for whom the hero is fighting, or else the story is just like not that interesting, right? It's not that satisfying. Most of the stories that we have seen over time for little kids, especially in fairy tales, it's a, it's a romantic interest. There's a love interest. And somebody, you know, a knight, you know, slays the dragon, saves the princess, and then, you know, that's, that's the story. But here's what's interesting about these stories. They always end at the conclusion of the quest, right? So once the adventure is completed, that's when the story ends. But they also end at the beginning of the relationship. 
You ever notice that? They end at the beginning of the relationship. So it's when the, when the prince and the princess get married, that's the end of the story. Because they always end with the stock phrase that says what? And they lived. Right. They don't say, and then they went to premarital counseling. And then it turns out that there were some financial struggles. And then the prince actually had uh, an addiction that he needed to work through. And the princess brought some baggage from her past. And the prince was a little bit selfish. And the princess was a little bit of a workaholic. And, you know, and they went to counseling and they worked it out. No, they just, storytellers somewhere like 10,000 years ago, storytellers said, let's just leave, let's just leave that part out. Like, that's complicated. Let's leave out what happens after the relationship forms, and let's just say they lived happily ever after, right? Let's not get into the nitty-gritty of what a relationship really is all about. And that's great if you are telling a story to children, right? That's a great way to wrap up the story. You say, babe, they lived happily ever after. That's what happened. Well, what do you mean, Dad? They just, just trust me. They just lived happily ever after. There were no problems there were no struggles. There were no squabbles. It was just happily, you know, that I saw a picture this week of, it was a painting of like Snow White after she had the prince. And then it was like her in her family room. And there were like babies. She was holding a baby and the, the prince had his feet up on the ottoman, you know, and he's watching TV and, you know, there are cats and dogs and the house is a mess. And, you know, it's like, it was just kind of making a joke about really were they really living happily ever after. So there's a there's there's a lot more to a relationship than just happily ever after, right? Because if you're 25 and let's say you're a 25-year-old woman and you're pursuing your education and you're pursuing your career and you're single and you're thinking, I wonder if there's going to be someone that I'll marry or what's that going to look like or who's that going to be? Happily ever after is not very satisfying in that moment. Or for a man who maybe has experienced a series of, you know, shallow or meaningless relationships and one day wakes up and says, you know, this is, this is leaving me a little hollow. Happily ever after is not really happening right now. I, I, I need something more than that. Or for even a married couple that have been together and maybe they started off strong and, and maybe they had a good relationship, but... At some point, they've sort of drifted away from each other, and things aren't working the way that they think that they should. And that happily ever after stock fairy tale phrase is not really working for them anymore. Or maybe it's even a couple that, you know, they've been together for years, but their relationship has just grown cold and distant. And they're tolerating each other, but there's no love there. And happily ever after is not describing that relationship. Or a person who's been divorced or widowed and they're wondering, how do I interact? How do I relate now to other people? Because happily ever after, it just isn't doing it for me. The fairy tale promises true love, but what it delivers is just a fantasy. It's just a fantasy. Um, How many of you guys have ever had your heart broken? You guys remember your very first heartbreak? Anybody ever had their heart broken? Only half? Okay. The rest of you must be heartbreakers. So, not good. Um, I mean, I remember as a little kid, like, having a, a few of these heartbreak situations. I remember one in particular. Uh, I was 11, and, and, and there, was a, there was a girl that I, she was my girlfriend, and her name was Jamie Jacks. She was 13, and Jamie Jacks was part of the, um, you know, she was part of our, at our church, and they, and they had this, at our denomination, and they had this camp meeting every year, and that's where everybody would, like, find their boyfriend and girlfriend. They would go to camp meeting at the end of the year, and then you know, you'd find your boyfriend and girl. And Jamie Jackson, I remember I knew she was going to be there. 
She was 13. I was 11. So she was an older woman. Uh, there's a theme uh, going on there in my, in my youth. But, but uh, and, and I just remember thinking, you know, I can't wait, right? I had my mom fix my hair. My mom had to like, before we went to camp meeting, she like took, she tried to straighten out my hair a little bit. So I looked a little bit more like Ponch, Poncharelli from Chips. You remember that? And um, I had this crushed blue velvet jacket on. I had the red knit tie. This is back when they had the little square on the bottom. You guys remember those red knit ties? Anybody had the gold tie clip, had the wingtips ready to go to camp meeting. And I just remember like strolling up the hill towards the tabernacle at camp meeting, walking up the hill, cresting the hill, scanning for Jamie Jacks. And what I saw was a heartbreak because I saw Jamie Jacks walking down the middle of the camp meeting with Brett Dyer holding hands like no big deal. And I just went like, you got to be kidding me. This is not how it's supposed. It's supposed to be happily ever after. What happened? When did they say, when did Brett Dyer come into the picture, man? That's not supposed to happen, right? You know, it's, it's, I officiate a lot of weddings and weddings, they always do this one. They always offer this one passage and it's a great passage. It's the love passage. You know it. Let me just read it to you. It says, and you guys know all this. You've heard this in weddings a lot of times. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And, and you, you know, usually in a wedding, um, a bridesmaid will come up and she'll have this passage and she'll read it and it's just a very little pleasant moment in the service. But, but what people are missing is that this is a signal that relationships are not always that easy. This is a signal that in a relationship, you will be tempted to be impatient, irritable, frustrated, and angry, but love is patient. In a relationship, you will be tempted to be harsh and intolerant and not understanding, but love is kind. There will be times in a relationship where you will be tempted to be bitter and envious and jealous, but love does not envy. In other words, this passage is saying to us, this isn't just, you know, uh, happily ever after. This is like deep. Love is something deep and it requires caring and loving and sacrificing for the other person. It means developing a habit and developing a pattern in your life where you're serving others, where you're reaching out. It's not just Pollyanna. It's just not happily ever after. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Are you, are you depressed at this point? Um, <laughs> and in fact, what's conspicuously absent from the Bible and from the descriptions of relationships in the Bible is the phrase happily ever after. It's just not there because the Bible is not a fairy tale. The Bible is not a fantasy. The Bible is getting into the nitty gritty of real life, what it means to love somebody, what it means to serve somebody, what it means to pour out your life and sacrifice for somebody. In fact, the Apostle Paul ends this passage not with happily ever after. He ends it with this. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man or when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. You see what he's saying there? 
He's saying love is not for rookies. Love is not for... It's, love means you've got to lay down some of that happily ever after stuff. You've got to lay down some of those childhood fantasies. And you've got to learn what real love is about because it's deep. And it's about serving. And it's about growing. And it's about caring. That's what true love is all about. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon, there are people all, and from all different you know, statuses right now in relationships. There are single people here. There are married people here. There are divorced people here. There are widowed people. There are all kinds of different people. So I thought, all right, how am I going to preach to everybody all at once? There are engaged people here. Uh, yeah, they're all, every status. How, 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 can, I, how can I share something that's going to be um, relevant to everybody? Um, and so what I want to do is I want to give a couple points that are just for singles. And then I want to give a few points that are for everybody, including singles, married, divorced, wherever you're at. That's, it will apply to you. So the first thing I want to say to single people is this. We honor single people here at U-City Family Church. We honor single people. And what that means is, unfortunately, the church has not done a great job historically at uh, talking to and addressing and working with single folks because it's sort of like seen as a liminal state between, you know, adolescence and then real life. And, you know, it's just single. And it's like that's, that's not biblical. That's not theologically sound. That's not correct. Even the Apostle Paul said very explicitly, he said, hey, you know, if you're single and you can remain single without being terribly distracted by your singleness, stay single. There's no problem there. You don't, it, you know, Jesus was single. We, you know, Paul was single. There were other people in the scriptures that were single that, and, and it's not like they needed someone to complete them, right? It's not that you're one piece of a puzzle and that you have to have the other piece of the puzzle to make you whole. You're whole. You're complete. If you're single here today, you're good. All right. It's, you're all good. So don't, don't put that stress and strain on yourself, right? Amen. All the married folks are like, yeah, tell, tell the single. It's good. Finding a spouse is good. I'm not saying it's not. It's amazing. It's fantastic. But, it does, but you're not half-baked if you're single, okay? You're complete. You're complete. Um, and the second one is this. And this is really for single folks, but it, it really does apply to all of us. Becoming the right person is more important than finding the right person. Becoming... The right person is more important than finding the right person. In fact, the most important thing that you will learn in finding a spouse is that finding a spouse is not the most important thing. Okay? Because becoming, the Bible, the Bible doesn't give us a formula for finding the right person. If, if you're single and you hear somebody say, well, the biblical way to, you know, find a spouse is you got a court or you've got a, like there are books that it will tell you, you know, here's this, here's the biblical way to find a spouse. The, the scripture does not give us a formula for finding a spouse because it's not as interested in finding a spouse. It's, it's, it's more in finding the right person. It's more interested in becoming the right person. In fact, I did a little research for you and I thought you might like this. Here are some of the ways that people found spouses in the Bible and I don't recommend them all. Okay. Um, number one, have God create a designer spouse for you while you're sleeping. This will cost you one rib. Um, number two, win a beauty contest to become one of the hundreds of wives of the contest sponsor. That was Esther. Number three, sneak into a prospective spouse's home and curl up at the foot of their bed. Number four, agree to work for seven years for your future father-in-law, get duped into marrying your girlfriend's sister, and then work seven more years to get the wife of your choice. 
Number five, find a woman you like and demand that your parents, quote, go and get her for you. That was Samson. Number six, wait for your brother to die and marry his wife. So these are, these are different approaches that you can take. Um, but the Bible is not, is not interested that much. In, in fact, most marriages in the scripture were arranged. So it's, it's not that interested in, in you know, helping you find the right person. It's, it's interested in helping you become the right person. Um, in fact, Andy Stanley did a series on this whole topic years ago. And I love the question that he asked in that series. He said, are you the person that the person you are looking for is looking for? Are you the person that the person you are looking for is looking for? And this applies not just to single people. This applies to married people, too. You may, you may say, man, I wish my spouse was this way or that way. Well, are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Um, Rebecca and I met 10 years before we started dating. And it wasn't because she was not the right person for me. It was because at that time I wasn't the right person for anybody. I, I needed, God needed to work on me to put me in a position in my heart and my mind in a position to where I could be good for somebody else. So, so one thing that, you know, the Bible really emphasizes is let's just focus on becoming the right person on our character, on our growth, on our spiritual growth. Let's focus on that. And then over time, we, we find the right person. In fact, the, the greatest romance story in the, in the Bible is the Boaz and Ruth. You know, that's the one, that's the go-to lover sermon, you know, because it's a, it is a beautiful story. But what I found really, really interesting in that story, in, in, in the story, Boaz is, he owns all of these fields and he's a landowner and he's got all of, all of these fields and, and Ruth is working in the fields. And at one point, Boaz goes to her and he says to her, hey, Ruth, look, I want you to know that I want you to know you're welcome to stay in these fields and if you need anything, you let me know, and you can always come up to the house if you need something, and I've already talked to all the guys, and I've told them to make sure that nobody messes with you, and I just want you to know I've got you covered, right? So there's a little, this, this is his introduction to her, and she says to him, why are you even favoring me like this? What, why are you even saying this to me? Why are you being so kind to me? And look what he said. Here's what he said. He said, I've been told all about what you have done. For your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know. In other words, what he's saying is, I've noticed who you are. I've noticed what you have become. Their relationship started years before they even met. Because she was kind to her mother-in-law, not because she was trying to find the right person. She was kind to her mother-in-law because she was trying to be the right person. And that's what attracted Boaz to her. He said, I've heard about your kindness. I've heard about your character. I've heard about your integrity. I've heard about the way you treat people. I've heard about your generosity. That's why I'm coming over to you. I mean, so if the Bible gives us a little glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse into finding that right person, it's all about character. It's all about us becoming the right person and then allowing God to introduce us um, to, to the right person. So last, last point I've got for just single people, um, and, and that is this. You want to look for character, right? In fact, here's the way, here's the way I want to say it. Inspect the foundation, not the fixtures. Inspect the foundation, not the fixtures. Character is so much more important than chemistry. Character is what lasts. Character is what stays over the long haul. 
Um, my wife and I, years ago, were probably six or seven years ago, we were looking for a house in University City. And we found this beautiful little house right over on in, in uh, University Hills, like right over, right over, right down the street. And this little place was just gorgeous. I mean, it was smaller than the other houses, um, but it was in a really great neighborhood. And it had these beautiful trees and it had, um, you know, stained glass windows. And it had all these little features of, of a cool house. And we just really liked it. But I noticed as we were walking through it, there were some things that gave me pause. Like there were these odd cracks kind of up coming up the wall. And the floor didn't seem totally even in places. And down in the basement, there were a couple places where you could see they had put poles uh, in the basement, like support poles. And, and so we kept talking. But the price was like in our range. It was the only house in our range. And so we were kind of excited about it. And... So we kept coming back, and finally I said, you know what, let's get a contractor to come in here and, and walk through with us. So we, got, we called a contractor. And I, and I remember as we're walking through, this contractor is looking everything up and down, checking it out, and he's totally silent. And we come out of the house at the end of our uh, inspection, and he kind of just does one of these. He's like, no, no. He's like, you know, there's something foundationally wrong with this house. Don't do it. We had already kind of gotten our hearts into it and pretty excited about it. But we thought, all right, we're, we're going to listen to this guy. Uh, so we passed on the house. And when we passed, the seller came back to us and said, we really like you guys. We want you to have this house. We're going to drop the price. And they dropped the price significantly. So now it was like well within our range. And I'm just like, man, should we do it? Do we not do it? We ultimately listened to the contractor and said, no, nah, we're, we're, we're not going to do it. But it just kind of bugged me, like, man, did we miss out on an amazing opportunity? If you've ever bought a house, there's that thing where it's like, there will never be another house on the market in our range that we like. It's just, this is the one. So about a couple, maybe three or four weeks or five weeks later, I remember thinking, man, you know what? I think I blew it on that because we were looking for other houses and they were out of our range. And, and I drove back by that house and they were... Somebody else had bought it, and they were fixing it up, and they were doing all this little work to it, and it was just, like, so picturesque and so beautiful. And I'm like, we blew it. We should have bought that house. I can't believe it. And it just bugged the tar out of me. And so, you know, we, weeks, a couple, two, three weeks later, I thought, well, I'm going to drive by again, and just I'm just going to, I guess I'm just going to, like, just moan, bemoan the fact that we missed this. So I drove back into the neighborhood, drove up to where the house was, and the house was gone. I mean, it was not there. It was leveled. There were a couple guys in a concrete truck. And that was it. And I got out of the car. And I went up to the guy. I go, what happened? He said, well, some people bought it. They were trying to fix it up. But there were some foundational you know, features that were, that were you know, irre- irreparable. So we're basically knocking, demoed the whole thing and starting over. And I kind of went like, yes. Like, you know, like, ah. Honey, I made a good choice for us, by the way. Um, the problem was the fixtures were amazing, but the foundation was not there. And so when you're, when you're in, that, in that zone of looking for someone and you're trying to meet someone, the foundation is what matters, not the fixtures, right? Wealth, beauty, the right job, these are fixtures. And these are, those are good things. You want nice fixtures, right? But... The foundation is what's important. Here's what the scripture says. I'll give you two scriptures on this. Proverbs 28. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Wealth is a fixture. Integrity is a foundation. Proverbs gets more colorful um, on the, the next one. It says, like, like a gold ring in a pig's snout 
is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. Beauty is a fixture. Discretion is a foundation. So when you're looking for that prospective spouse, examine the foundation. If you, and, and, and if you need to, a second, you need a contractor to look at them, bring them around to church. You know, we'll meet them. We'll talk to them. We'll check them out for you. Um, okay. That's it for just single folks. Um, the rest of it sort of incorporates everybody because when you begin to find someone, when you enter into a relationship, when you commit to someone, especially after you're married, here's what you want to do. You want to scan for diamonds, not for dirt. This is in your, in your notes if you want to take notes. Scan for diamonds, not for dirt. And what I mean by that is, what is that person that you're with doing right? What are they doing well? What traits and qualities do they have that are admirable? Right? It's so easy. You, if you are looking to criticize, people who look to criticize will always find something to criticize. Always. What are you looking for in that other person? Can you scan for their attributes and their qualities that you admire and not just focus on their, their detriments, the things that you don't like about them? Um, we, we watch a show every once in a while called The Amazing Race. And it's this sort of like show where they go out. It's a, it's a global scavenger hunt. And I remember there was an episode where there was this young woman. They were in India. And they were right outside of the Taj Mahal. And this is like an architectural masterpiece. And they're surrounded by this beauty. And the, the, care, the, the woman on the show and this, this couple, she was, she was complaining. She was like, you know what? Nobody here speaks English, you know? And the food is just like way too spicy. All this curry, you know? It's like so hot down here. Like, you're in India, okay? And, you know, you're missing out on the Taj Mahal, right? Because she was so focused on things to criticize that she wasn't admiring the things that were beautiful around her. And we do this in relationships. We, a lot of times, can focus on the things that we don't like about the person that we're with. And God's calling us to, like, let's focus on what's beautiful about them, what's admirable about them, uh, what's good there. Because here's what, here's, what's hap- here's what happens in a relationship. It's called an emotional cascade, all right? Now watch this. When you criticize, when your relationship is full of criticism, it creates a chain reaction. There's a cycle that happens. It goes from criticism to defensiveness to contempt to stonewalling to isolation. When you are critical towards that person that you love or you, you focus on the things that you don't like, this is sort of what unravels. And pretty soon you find yourself alienated and isolated from your spouse because what you've been doing is scanning for dirt. You've been scanning for things to criticize and complain about in the relationship. On the other hand, if you start with gratitude, you start to build, you start an emotional cascade of appreciation, generosity, trust, and ultimately intimacy. You can create either one of these cycles in a relationship. And in fact, if you're going down one, you can stop and start going down the other one. This is just what happens in a relationship. Uh, uh, it, 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 it pours out and it just sort of cycles and it builds. So I want to challenge us today in your own relationship. When you're thinking about your spouse or when you're talking to your spouse, take a moment and say, hey, you know what? I really appreciate the way that you, you know, provide for our family. Or I really appreciate um, the way you listen to me when I t- tell you about my job. Or, you know, find those things that are, that are valuable and that are good about your spouse 
and focus and drill down on those. Here's what the scripture says. It says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. And what that means is focus on the things that are, love that person, like pour out love, pour out patience, pour out kindness, pour out gratitude and generosity. Uh, and, and don't focus on the things that are, that are just like annoying to you, right? Just don't, don't criticize those. I mean, there are ultimately in relationships, there are some deal breakers, but outside of those, like, let's just focus on what's good about our spouse. All right. That's number one. The next one is a little more subtle, um, and a little harder to get a hold of, but it's this hear the offhand as an offer, hear the offhand as an offer. Um, this is interesting. If, if, you've, if you've ever been driving down the street with your spouse, and or maybe you're dri- let's say you're driving out in the country, and your spouse says, oh, look at that old barn that's falling down, right? Your spouse, whether he or she knows it or not, and whether you know it or not, is, is not as interested in the barn. What they're interested in is connecting with you. And when you say to someone, hey, look at that old barn or hey babe I was just reading this article isn't this interesting or hey can I just tell you about my job today what they're what they're doing is they're giving you an offer to connect with them this is an offer to connect and your response to that offer will have a major impact on the relationship over time um, John Gottman who is a guy that I reference when we do relationship series John Gottman is the leading researcher in relationships and you know uh, they studied thousands of couples and the way they interact and the way they communicate um, and one thing that he talked about is this this principle because they call it a bid and what they have found is that when they studied couples when when couples turned toward the bid in other words when somebody says hey look at that barn and the other person says, oh, yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, and they actually just engage you. Just, it could be just a moment. It's very subtle. It's very offhanded. Um, but when couples do that consistently, they turn towards the, the offers for intimacy, for in, uh, offers of connection. Those couples experience high levels of health and satisfaction and vibrancy and love in their relationship. And the couples that don't, they, they fall away from each other. In fact, here were the statistics. I found these to be pretty amazing. He said that um, uh, couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had turned toward these offhand offers of intimacy only 33% of the time. In other words, one out of three times when your spouse said, hey, hey, notice this. Hey, pay attention to me. Hey, check me out. Hey, check this out, right? The, the couples that fell apart were couples where they only responded those one out of three times. Um, but the couples who were together and in happy, loving relationships had what he called turn toward rates 80% of the time, 87% of the time. That means almost nine out of 10 times when somebody in the relationship offered a, a, hey, look at me or, hey, connect with me. In the happy relationships, the other spouse said, okay, I'll connect with you on that. And it could be momentary and it could be fleeting. The scripture has a, a, a principle that applies to this, and, and it's in Romans 12. It says this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. What the scripture is saying is empathize with that other person. Notice that other person. Take, come out of yourself and, 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 and connect with the other person. Let them, whatever they're saying, it may not be that 
full disclosure, it may not be that interesting to you, right? But you can still connect with them because it's interesting to them, right? And if, if you can't connect for some reason in that moment, connect enough to say that I can't connect, right? It's okay to say, hey, um, I'm actually just getting ready to step into a meeting. I will call you back, and I look forward to hearing about your conversation with the person at the supermarket, and, but I will call you back on that, okay? All right, good. Okay, I love you. Okay, bye. Um, take the time to connect. Take the time to empathize. Uh, the only way that we can do this consistent, consistently is to practice the next principle, which is this. Close your eye. Close your eye. Capital I. Open your heart. Um, what I have found, and I think all of us, if we're, if we're cognizant of this, we, we, we kind of intuitively know this, there aren't really, marriage problems don't really exist. What they really are are people problems. And people bring their problems to each other and they bring them to a marriage. And now there are problems, right? But it's not marriage that does it. It's people that do it. We come with our own selfishness. We come with our own desire and self-absorption and our interest in our own things and our own desires and our own expectations. And what happens is in a marriage, those can bump up against the other person's desires and interests and expectations. Man, I'm, I could preach on money and you guys would be louder than you are today. This is nice and quiet and this is, whoo, it's real. Um, we're getting into the, the deep end of the pool. But, but what happens is we, we end up, we end up uh, having our interests collide with the interest of someone else. And that's where the problem starts. And if you really want to have a healthy, vibrant, loving relationship with a friend, a colleague, a family member, or a spouse, there's got to be a transition from I to we. There's got to be a moment where you're transitioning from this is what I want, this is what they want, and we need to come together to figure out what's best for us, right? What's we? Um, I'll give another personal story, but when Rebecca and I got together, we both had our I hats on, right? We both had lived our own lives and we're coming into the relationship with like me. I've got some ideas about how things need to be done. And she had some ideas about th how things need to be done. And we're both a little bit stubborn. And so these kind of, these things hit, hit into each other when we were, especially when we were dating before we went to premarital counseling and premarital classes. Uh, but, but we were trying to, we were trying to figure this out and it kind of culminated in this, in this, uh, this right before our wedding, we had kind of negotiated a lot of stuff, and, and Rebecca had said something to me about our wedding that I just thought was crazy. She said, you know, I, she had gone to Italy, and she had seen this wedding, and in this wedding, the, the, the groom and the bride, they drove off of the wedding in a Vespa. You guys know what a Vespa is? It's like a moped. And she's like, wouldn't it be so cool if we, like, drive off from our wedding in a, in a moped? And I'm like, that would be so not cool at all. Like, like you want me to get on a moped? Like, you want me to drive you away from the wedding in a moped? At this time, I had a Harley Davidson. This is, this is back in the day. So, so I'm like, babe, I drive, first of all, I drive a Harley Davidson, okay? I don't drive mopeds. I'm, uh, I have a leather jacket, okay? You know, like, you know, people take pictures when you drive a moped. And I can't have people seeing me drive a moped. It's just like, it's not me, babe. It's just not me. So she was like really intent on this. You know, I just think it would be so neat if we just drove off the wedding from a moped in a little Vespa, a little baby blue Vespa. Wouldn't that be so cool? And I just was like, I mean, I'm talking to my groomsmen. I'm like, I don't know. I mean, what's, what, am I crazy? Or is like, is that just a weird idea? Um, you know, 
I didn't push back on anything else. I didn't even, you know, the details, whatever. But the moped, now, that, that involves me. Um, it's a masculinity issue. I, mean, I can't, you know. But so, so we come to the wedding, all right? And we're, we're, we're in California uh, where her family is from. And, and it's wedding time. And it was the day before the wedding. And I just started being like, well, man, you know, I don't know. Maybe I should. I don't, maybe I should lay down my eye and open my heart a little bit. Maybe I should have a little bit of a wee moment with my wife. You know, it's, it's, it's the wedding. You know, it's more, it's, it's her day. Um, so I had one of my groomsmen drive me up to Los Angeles. And I'll go into a motorcycle shop. And I'm like, do you guys have any, uh, you guys have any mopeds or anything that you rent out? Um, and they had a baby blue Vespa that they were willing to rent. I got on the baby blue Vespa. I drove down the PCH at like, you know, 8 o'clock at night. It was freezing. The moped only goes 30 miles per hour. Everybody else is driving 215. I'm like risking life and limb for my wife. We go to the wedding. I didn't, I didn't tell her about it. We go to the wedding. After the wedding, I say, hey, babe, come over here. And this was us at the very end of our wedding. Dude, on, on the baby blue Vespa. Guys, can I tell you something? I, can, I was allowed to be selfish for the next two years because I had opened my heart just at one time. You can get a lot of traction if you'll just open your heart. Now, but, but the truth is, if you're, going to, if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, there are times you've got to lay down your pride. You've got to lay down your point of view. It's, it's not that you have to roll over and become somebody else. In fact, it doesn't even mean that you're not assertive, right? In fact, being assertive means, hey, I'm going to tell you what I think, what I want, what I desire, but I'm also going to work with you to figure out how, what's best for us, right? It doesn't mean that you just roll over and do whatever somebody else says. But it means that you take some time to come and try to understand what, where are they coming from? What, what, are, what is their need? What do they hope? What is their aspiration? And how can we come together in a way that will be best for both of us? The scripture says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is Philippians 2. Your spouse is not you. They don't have your same brain chemistry. They don't have your same background. They don't have your parents. They don't have your same experiences. They're coming from a totally different angle. But to love them means that you will stop and you will listen to where they're coming from and try to try to approach them with an open-heartedness uh, that is not all about you and it's not all about self-absorption. Because here's the other thing, and I'm, I'm about to wrap this up. You cannot change them. You can only change you. You cannot change your spouse. You can only change you. In fact, if I, I would like for this to be a creed. I think the church should introduce this as a creed for all couples that are about to get married. I want all couples to know you can't change them, right? It's hard enough to change you. I mean, we spend, the, in the United States, we spend $40 billion in the dieting industry. And only about 5% of people maintain the weight loss that they've lost. It's hard to change you, right? Uh, two years after bypass surgeries, 90% of people that have had bypasses 
go back to eating exactly the same way that they did before they had the bypass. Right? Two-thirds of us don't floss our teeth, and we know that we're supposed to. It's hard to change us, right? Don't try to change the other person. You cannot change the other person. There's enough for each one of us to work on that we don't need to try to change the other person and, 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 and force them to become the thing that we think that they need to become. We've got enough stuff of our own. Here's the way Jesus said it. He said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So the scripture is saying, look, you know, in a relationship, if you want to have a a healthy, vibrant, loving relationship, don't try to change them. Don't try to make them conform to your image. Let them be them. You be you. Work together. Love one another. And then this is the last point I want to I want to end with this. And that is deposit more than you withdraw. Deposit more than you withdraw. In your, in your relationship with someone else, there's, a, there's an emotional bank account. You've probably heard this, this concept before, but there's an emotional bank account. And the more times you interact in a loving, kind, positive way, you're building up that account. And the, the experts say it's five to one. You, for, a, for a relationship to have real health and vibrancy, there need to be at least five positive interactions for one negative interaction. So that big old, that big old surly argument that you had, you, you know, there's some catching up to do after that, right? Expressing some love, expressing some kindness, some generosity, some gentleness to that person. There was a family that we knew, um, friends of our family from years ago, uh, and we still know them today, but they, they went through a patch in their marriage uh, that no one could have seen and no one could have anticipated. This was a couple that are, are Christians. They were involved in church. They're married, um, and they had kids, and they had a loving, loving relationship. Um, when they were young, they just, like everybody said, these two are just the right fit. And after about 15 years of marriage, what they noticed is they had begun to drift apart. And it wasn't anything major. There was no major drama. There was no infidelity. Um, there was no abuse. There was not, nothing like that. It was just that they had kind of stopped making deposits in the emotional account. They had stopped co- complimenting one another. They had stopped taking each other out on dates. They had stopped spending time together. They had stopped buying little gifts for each other. They had stopped you know, spending time asking about each other's day. They had stopped making those little those little subtle deposits. And it wasn't that they were interested in other people. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, they just kind of stopped doing it. And what they found is that suddenly their emotional account with each other was dry. And they were in the same house. And to all external appearances, they were fine. It's just a married couple. But there was nothing there between them. They were bored with each other. They were tired of each other. They were no longer interested in each other. They were just like roommates in the house just sharing you know it was a business transaction at that point and there was a moment in the relationship with those who are those of us who are really close to them were genuinely concerned this is right on the edge it can go one way or it can go another this could just end right now three kids everything could just be over fortunately the both of them you know went to their church and and went to um some a counselor there at their church and said, hey, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We don't, 
we don't really care. Neither of us really care if this relationship stays intact. Neither of us really care if this thing stays, stays together. And they got the counsel of making deposits. Their counselor said, look, why don't you guys go out on a date? Why don't you guys compliment one another a little bit? Why don't you find ways to connect with each other? Why don't you? And so they started doing this. And it wasn't, it wasn't immediate. wasn't overnight. They didn't become like, you know, blissful lovers like that just suddenly. But over time, they began to build their emotional account. And it's, that's been about 12 years ago now. And they have a relationship that is stronger than it has ever been, ever been, even when they first started out. Because they have, they have figured out that you've got to make more deposits than withdrawals. You've got to spend some time pouring into this relationship. If you want the relationship to work, you've got to pour it out to fill up. You've got to pour out. My dad, when he was a preacher and he did a ton of weddings, and he would always say this at every wedding, and now I say it at every wedding. He says, the grass is always greener on the side that gets the water. If you want to have a loving, beautiful, vital, vibrant relationship, begin to pour out, begin to cultivate that other person, begin to make deposits into that emotional bank account, one at a time, little by little. Because life is not a fairy tale. Romance is not a fairy tale. Love is not a fairy tale. God wants us to grow in our love for one another. And growing means serving and caring and loving. I'm going to give you three applications. Three applications as we close. And you can write these down in your, in your notes. The first one is this. Compliment your spouse, friend, or family member each day this week. For some of you, this will be totally novel. The person that you want to have that relationship with, find something about that person that you admire or you respect. You can do it right now. That's cool. You can do it. Um, Tell them what you like about them. Tell them what you appreciate about them. Tell them what you love about them. Let them know. They might not know. Begin to build that emotional cascade of gratitude and generosity and kindness and trust and intimacy. Each day this week, this is the challenge compliment that person one day each week and it's got to be a new compliment you can't say every morning honey i like your hair you get you gotta you gotta do something else it's got to be something new each day number two is to commit to one unexpected act of generosity this week for your spouse your friend your family member whoever it is that you're trying to connect with one unexpected act of generosity doesn't have to be crazy it can be bringing home a flower it can be you know making a meal it can be what what one unexpected act Something that you don't feel a duty to do. Something that you don't feel required to do. See what that generates in your relationship this week. And the third one is this. Commit to one uninterrupted hour of time with your spouse, family member, or friend this week. One uninterrupted. Sometimes it's just a matter of time. Sometimes it's just a matter of putting down the phone, shutting down the laptop, and focusing on the other person. Connecting with that other person. One hour. One hour this week. Because life is not a fairy tale and the story does not end with boy meets girl and there isn't just happily ever after. God's calling us to grow, to care, to love. I want us to be a church where couples flourish. Where you, where you, this is the kind of place where couples really say, man, we love each other. We're not perfect. We don't have everything together, but we love each other. We genuinely love each other. I want us to be a light to other people all around our community and they go you know what 
for whatever, whatever else I think about that church, those people love one another. That's the real deal. The, the, the stories are promising true love and they're delivering a fantasy. These guys are delivering the real thing. This is true love. Let me pray for you. God, I pray right now for each and every one of us. I thank you, Lord, for the scriptures that you've given us that teach us how to love, how to care for one another, how to sacrifice, how to do little subtle things that bring joy and happiness and gratitude into our relationships. God, I know that there are people here today that are struggling in their relationships, uh, singles and married and divorced and widowed people from across the board. And God, I pray that you would just reach into their heart today and begin to plant just the little seed of growth and hope and trust and joy. Let them begin again to experience the love that you have for them. God, and let them then begin to to express that love to the person that they're trying to develop a relationship with. Let them, Lord God, grow in their love for one another. Let us let us get into the real, the reality of the scripture, the reality of the relationships of those in the scripture, God, and understand that real love is about caring, it's about serving, it's about it's it's not a feeling, it's it's an action that we grow in our love for one another. Father, I pray that that after today and, and in the coming weeks, um, those couples that are struggling in their relationship will begin to flourish, that they'll see a change in their spouse, that they'll begin to grow and develop, and that those, those couples that just seem miles apart will, Lord, begin to, begin to develop something that's deeper and stronger and more powerful than anything they've ever experienced. Father, I just pray for each and every one of us. Help us to, to build relationships that honor you and that bring glory to you. Help us to grow in our own understanding. Help us to grow in our generosity and our kindness towards others and our sacrifice towards others. And Father, I just pray for peace and joy in the hearts of everyone here today. All of this we pray in your name. All of this we pray to your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.